Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Like Derek said, my name is Dan, and I serve at our network office. Some of you remember me from the last time I was here, but it's wonderful to always be here with you at Trinity Assembly of God. And uh, you have a wonderful church family and wonderful church leadership, and uh, you're truly blessed. And so it's my privilege to be here with you today. If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to look at Exodus chapter 19 and 20. And we're going to be closing out your series on the book of Exodus. I had the privilege of uh, listening in on a few of the messages from this series. What a wonderful series it's been uh, going through uh, the story of God's rescuing of the people of Israel. And so uh, this morning we have the opportunity to wrap up uh, that series uh, with uh, a message on Exodus 19 and 20. Uh, How many of you know that relationships are transformative things in our lives? Relationships are transformative things in our lives. That may seem obvious, but of course, the closer uh, we are to someone in relationship, the more transformative that relationship is. Um, I think about the relationship I have with my parents, and obviously, uh, that's a transformative relationship. There are things that uh, they have imparted to me simply from their DNA. I have uh, my mother's propensity for order and organization. Uh, and I have my father's propensity for corny, silly humor. And uh, so those are things that they just, they've transferred to me by who they are, but they've also transferred to me their values, the way they see the world, uh, how I invest in my children is very much similar to how they have invested in me. There are things that are transformative about that relationship. Uh, The friendships we have in our lives are transformative. Uh, My son, Amos, is 11 years old, and uh, the other day, I asked him to do something. I said, Amos, I need you to go help me with this, and he said, no problem, Dad, I got this. (laughs) And he did a a dab. Do you know what that is? You guys, I I don't even know if I did that right. I think that was awful. (laughs) He clearly did not learn that from me. Uh, He learned that from his friends uh, somewhere at church, and and so uh, uh, he tends to absorb uh, the values and uh, the behavioral traits of of the community that he's in. Uh, If you uh, have a job, uh, the the relationship you have with your boss is transformative. When you go to work, you begin to dress a certain way that's appropriate for the job that you go to. You begin to act in a certain way that uh, fits the culture of the organization that you are a part of. It's a more formal relationship, but it's a transformative relationship nonetheless. Uh, My wife and I have been married 12 years, and uh, it certainly is a transformative relationship. We're at the point now in our relationship where we can finish each other's sentences, which is a really fun place to be. Uh, And uh, sometimes she's like, just stop talking. I already know what you're going to say. And, uh, but, but it's transformative also in the way I think, because now uh, I do not think in terms of me, I think in terms of we. And so uh, there is a community aspect to that relationship, and it changes the way I see the world, the way my values are formed, and uh, not just my behavior, but how I think as well. Relationships are meant to be transformative, and ultimately, God rescues us for relationship right? God rescues us for relationship, and uh, that relationship is ultimately meant to be transformative. 
He doesn't rescue us just to rescue us, although uh, we're grateful that he does rescue us, but he rescues us for relationship, and that relationship is meant to be transformative. It's meant to change my values. It's meant to change my behavior. It's meant to change how I think and how I see the world and how I interact with others, and it's meant to change how my very identity is formed and this is what we actually begin to see here in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. This is perhaps one of the most iconic and one of the most familiar passages in all of Scripture. And sometimes we can just take it as an isolated uh, portion of Scripture and just look at those Ten Commandments that we see uh, uh, put on plaques on walls and that we elevate as, okay, these are the rules of ethics and morality in our culture. Uh, but we need to look at this in the context of God rescuing us for relationship and Him imparting His identity onto us. How many of you are familiar with the Ten Commandments? Anybody? Uh, I love the, the story of the Ten Commandments as a kid. Uh, my, I asked my mom when I was a kid to uh, make me a set of Ten Commandments so I could dress up as Moses, and I found this picture that you, oh, you can barely see it. Anyway, I'll have to post it on Facebook. She made, me, <laughs> she made me a set of Ten Commandments. I used to dress up like Moses and carry them around in my bathrobe. <laughs> go up to the top of the stairs and throw them down on the sinful Israelites. Uh, but uh, uh, we, can, we can look at Exodus chapter 20 specifically where the Ten Commandments are listed, and we can look at that in a very narrow perspective. But this morning, I hope to broaden our perspective as to what, what God was actually doing here on Mount Sinai with the people of Israel. It's more than just simply giving us a list of ten rules to live by. It's more than just uh, 10 rules that we're supposed to elevate and esteem and put on plaques and pictures and hang in courthouses. It's so much more than that. And uh, uh, as we look at a few verses uh, from this story, we're going to look starting here in chapter 19. We see, and you know from being a part of this series, that uh, the nation of Israel has just been miraculously delivered from over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Uh, God sends 10 divine plagues uh, to wreak havoc upon the nation and ultimately rescue the people of Israel out of their slavery. God divinely parts the Red Sea and allows the nation to walk through, and the entire Egyptian army after that is drowned as they try to chase them through the Red Sea. Another unbelievable miracle. Again, after that, we see that God sovereignly supplies for their needs by providing water for them in the desert where there is none, and bread and meat falling from the sky where there is none. And on top of that, every day and every night, they are led by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night, a reminder of God leading them and guiding them and directing them. And after several months of traveling, they arrive at Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And I want to pick up reading here in chapter 19, verse 3. It says, Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth, for all the earth belongs to me. 
and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. Would you pray with me one more time this morning? Heavenly Father, today we thank you for your word, and uh, Lord, we thank you that you have rescued us for relationship with you. And uh, Father, today I pray that you would uh, give us a glimpse into the picture that you have in your heart for your people. God, we know that uh, you want to do in us something that is more than what we could ever want to do in ourselves. And so, Lord, as we examine your word this morning, I pray that you would do that work in our hearts. Give us a sense of what it means to be your people following after you in your heart. In Jesus' name. Now, this, this event in Exodus chapter 19 is a significant event. Uh, it's actually the fulfillment of a promise that God made to Moses all the way back in Exodus chapter 3. If you recall, when God calls Moses, remember Moses is living out as a shepherd. He has run away from Egypt. He uh, has made a family out there in the desert, but he, he, he goes and, and, and God speaks to him at the burning bush and calls him to go back and lead the nation of Israel uh, out of slavery. And uh, God makes this promise to him, Exodus 3.12. He says, I will be with you, and this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. This is a promise that God made to Moses before any of this ever happened. This is a significant moment now when the nation of Israel comes back to the mountain of God. And so it's not an accident that God brings the people back to the mountain, uh, Mount Sinai. It's not an accident. It's not a detour. It's not just, oh, they were happening to go to the promised land and, oh, look, we're passing Mount Sinai. Let's stop here and for a tourist visit. It's no, God had this in his mind from the very beginning. He says, I'm going to rescue my people and I'm going to bring them to this mountain and I'm going to show them who I am and who they are as well. He says, verse four, he says, you see what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. God outlines here three phases of his story with the people of Israel. First, he says, I, I, I am bringing, I've brought you out. I'm bringing you out. He says, you, I saw, you saw what I did to the Egyptians. I rescued you. I brought you out of slavery. Then he says, I lifted you up. I carried you on eagle's wings. Not only did I rescue you, but I lifted you up and I raised you. The imagery here is given of, a, of an eagle, a mother eagle swooping down and, and rescuing and, and lifting up her eaglets that are struggling to fly. In fact, if we, we read later uh, in the book of Hosea, God gives this picture of, of helping Israel to walk as if a parent holding the hands of a child who is learning to walk. And he says, I am the one that taught you how to walk. This is what he's saying here. I lifted you up. Not only did I rescue you, but I raised you as well. And then finally he says, I'm drawing you close. He says, I brought you to myself. So God's saying, he's saying, I rescued you. I raised you, but I've done all this for the sake of relationship because I'm bringing you to myself. And now he begins to reveal to Moses and to the people of Israel what this relationship actually looks like. And to do this, God then begins to speak in what is called covenant language with his people. 
begins to speak in covenant language. He, he has a formal way of addressing them. He says, you are the family of Jacob. You are the descendants of Israel. It's the same way uh, an ancient covenant would have begun. And he, then he says, if you will keep my covenant. And so we see this covenant language. Well, what is a covenant? Well, in ancient times, a covenant was simply a contract that was between an individual or a group of individuals uh, they would make with each other. And usually there was a set of conditions on both sides. I'm going to do this. You are going to do this. And we are bonded together in this new relationship. And we're going to honor the conditions of this relationship. And in scripture, we see that God makes a number of covenants with different people over different periods of time throughout scripture. And obviously I can't go into all of the covenants throughout scripture. That would be a whole series in and of itself. But uh, uh, it's uh, certainly uh, an interesting uh, discussion if you look through the whole of scripture. But going back, we see in Genesis chapter 12 and 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant with one person. He says, Abraham, this is the covenant that I'm going to make with you. Abraham, your descendants one day will outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And then he also says to Abraham, someday, Abraham, your descendants are going to inherit all of the land of Canaan. This is your land. This is your place. I have made this for you and for your people to inherit. And then finally, God says, and the whole world will be blessed through you. The promise that God made to Abraham, that was uh, the covenant God made to Abraham. God reaffirms this covenant to Isaac, Abraham's son, and he reaffirms it again to Jacob, Abraham's grandson. And now here in Exodus 19, as God is speaking to the people of Israel, the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham, the people that, that uh, God said would exist one day, this great nation that was going to come from Abraham's line, who are now headed back to the promised land, the very land that God promised to them, God stops them at this mountain and he reminds them of this covenant and he says, now let me show you how you're going to bless the whole world. And so God is reminding them of his promise to Abraham, and now he's reaffirming his covenant with them again. And he gives them this picture. He says, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. Two very significant identities that God gives for his people in this passage. The first is that he calls them a treasured people. He calls them a treasured people. He says, you will be my own special treasure from among all peoples on the earth. God had a unique affection for the people of Israel. And the language that he's using here uh, is, is the language of uh, describing the royal property of a king or a monarch. And he's saying, you, you are as if you are the most valuable, treasured possession that a king could ever own. And that's what you are to me. God says, you are my people and you are my special treasure. That's interesting because uh, the truth is, is that there really was not anything uniquely special about the people of Israel for God to call them his special treasure other than the fact that God chose them, other than the fact that God chose to rescue them. Their being chosen was simply an act of grace 
on the part of God. They were, after all, a nation of slaves. What is special about that? And yet God chooses them as his special treasure. Listen to what Moses says later on in Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, he says, For you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all people on the earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. The Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you and that he was keeping his oath that he swore to your ancestors. That is why the Lord rescued you with such a strong hand from your slavery and from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God says, you are my people and you're my own special treasure. It's not because of anything that you did to deserve it. It's not because of anything you did to earn it. It's not because of anything special that's inside of you. It is simply because I love you. You're my special people. The second image, the second identity that we see that God gives his people is that of a royal priesthood. He says, you will be my kingdom of priests. Not a kingdom with priests, but a kingdom of priests. Every person in the nation is meant to serve a priestly role. So there's a couple of things that, that draw out of this as we begin to look at this concept. First, every single person in the kingdom of Israel was meant to serve and worship God. Every single person. Not just the leader, not just the priesthood, which would later come on in the Levitical 9 for the nation of Israel, but every single person was meant to have a relationship with God. But it was more than that. The nation of Israel was also meant to serve a priestly role as a nation among the nations. God was going to use the nation of Israel to facilitate his plan of salvation for the entire world. God's desire for his people, for his people, was that they would be a light to the world so that all people would see what it looks like to follow after God with all of your heart. As a nation, not just individually, but as a community, what that looks like when the people of God worship him and serve him together. And he says, when you do that, you're going to be a light to the entire world and the nations will come and find out who I am. And if you read the New Testament, when you read about Jesus clearing the temple, when he flips over the tables of the money changers in the temple, the reason he does that is not because people are buying and selling in the church foyer, right? That's not why he's upset. The reason he's upset is because the Jews at the time were hindering the foreigners who wanted to come and worship God, who had traveled from, from faraway nations to come because they had heard about the God of Israel and they wanted to worship him. His original desire for his people was for them to be a light to the whole world, to have a priestly role among the nations. So Israel is not just chosen from the nations, but for the nations. 
And God is showing the nation of Israel that this is what this special relationship is going to look like. He says, if you follow me, if you keep my covenant, if you become this community that is my people, people are going to begin to see the light that is in you, and it is going to change the world. And so he's infusing into his people a divine identity. They are no longer slaves, but they are children of God. They have been rescued, they've been redeemed, they've been called out, they've been called close to him, they are his special treasure, and they've been given a mission to be a light to all the nations of the glory and the goodness of God. And so Moses then goes down the mountain to speak with the people, and he tells them what God has revealed to him. And they respond by saying, we will do everything that the Lord has commanded. Later on, God goes on to inform Moses that he wants to speak to the people directly. God says to Moses, I want to reveal myself to my people. And so he tells them, for the next three days, I want you to purify yourselves and consecrate yourselves and get ready to come and meet with me. And he says, I'm going to come down on this mountain. And because I'm coming down on this mountain, this mountain is is going to be holy. It's going to be holy ground. And so no one who is unworthy and, and who is impure can enter my presence. And so I want you to mark off the boundaries of this mountain. And anybody that crosses the boundary to walk onto the mountain must be put to death. And so this is what the people of Israel do. They spend three days purifying themselves. And on the third day, it says that Moses consecrates the people. And most uh, commentators believe that, that Moses offers a sacrifice to God on that last day to purify the people and to consecrate them before God. And then we're given this picture of God descending to the mountain. This is uh, an incredible picture that we see In Exodus chapter 19, there is thunder, there is lightning, there is dark smoke, there is a cloud, there is fire, there is the blowing of a loud trumpet. It is a magnificent supernatural experience where God comes down upon this mountain. And and though we see this, this picture of a dark cloud as maybe something ominous or scary, it's actually a God way of cloaking himself and concealing himself because the full glory of who he is would be too much for the people to experience. And the nation is given this incredible picture of the awesomeness and the holiness of God. Uh, I found this picture. Can you see that? Oh, that's hard to see. If you have time, go on the internet and look this up. (laughs) This happened this week. This is Mount Egung in Bali. This is a volcano uh, that went off this week, and the pictures are absolutely terrifying. And when I saw this picture this week, I said, oh, like I, I was reading Exodus 19 this week, and as I saw the picture, I said, wow. I said, that is even more magnificent than what I had in my mind from Exodus 19, and that's a natural event. Can you imagine what the people of Israel are experiencing as the presence of God descends down upon this mountain in fire and smoke and thunder and lightning? 
The imagery that is given here is very similar to the imagery we see later on in Scripture when Isaiah has a vision of the throne room of God in Isaiah 6. It's this same type of imagery. When we're given a picture of what heaven looks like and God seated on his throne in Revelation chapter 4, it's this exact same kind of imagery, uh, the power and the presence of God descending in an unbelievable way. And the people of Israel are there experiencing this. And God then calls Moses alone up to the mountain to meet with him. And in this way, Moses acts as a mediator between God and the people. And it's here that God gives them his law, what we now call the Ten Commandments, or as some theologians will call the Decalogue. And what I I hope that you understand this morning is that when God is giving his law to his people, it is coming out of the context of a covenant relationship. It's not God simply saying, here I am, look at how powerful I am now. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. It is the part of a, it is the completion of a story that God is building in the nation of Israel. He's saying, I rescued you, I've redeemed you, I've raised you, I've drawn you to myself, and now I'm going to show you who I am so that you can see who you are. And so he gives them his law. Now, his law is unique in ancient culture. Uh, other laws uh, from this time period are very, very different. Other laws from this time period would say, uh, here is a list of behaviors that are unacceptable, and here are a list of the consequences for those unacceptable behaviors. Uh, Hammurabi's Code is the most famous of these in ancient culture, but similar ones are, are, are very much written in that same vein. But the Ten Commandments are written very different. And here it's less about a list of rules to obey or else and more about this is who I am and this is what my people look like. It's God saying this is who I am and this is what my people will look like. And he prefaces the Ten Commandments by saying this. He says, I am the Lord, your God, personal. I am your God who brought you out of Egypt. I am your Redeemer. And he's saying this to assert his authority to give the law and the obligation of his people to obey. And ultimately, the law reflects the character of the lawgiver. The law reveals the character of the lawgiver. And that's really true of any society. If you examine the laws of any society, you can see what that society values. There is a reason that parking lots are meant to be a certain way in the United States and that wheelchair ramps have to be installed in all new buildings, and that elevators have to be installed in buildings with multiple floors. Why? Because we live in a society, a society that says it doesn't matter what your ability or disability, that you should be able to function as a normal human being as much as possible, and we care about that as a society. So the laws we have in our nation reveal the character of the lawgivers. It reveals the character of the society that gives the laws. And so God's law here is just as much about who he is as much as it is about what he desires from us. God's revealing who he is. And so he begins to give his law, and the first four commandments, as many of you I'm sure are familiar, directly relate to his people's relationship to him 
his first law, he says this, you shall have no other gods before me. It is an unequivocal assertion of monotheism. He's saying, there are no other gods. I'm not the best God among a whole bunch of others. I am the only God. There are no other gods before me. No other gods can stand in my presence because they do not exist. I am the only God, and I am a jealous God. I will not share my glory. There are no other gods before me. And if you're going to be my people, you cannot have any other God but me. Secondly, he says, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind. Now that kind of seems repetitive. He already said there are no other gods, so why does he have to tell them not to make idols? He's saying, don't even make an idol of me because the tendency of people is to confuse the creation with the creator. And God says, I am a spirit. I do not dwell in physical form, but I am a spirit. And so I don't want you to confuse the creation with the creator. The creation is beautiful and it is good and it reflects who I am, but I am the creator. So don't make any idol. Don't make any form of me. Worship me in spirit. Number three says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The very name of God is holy. This is less about blasphemy and less about cursing, both of which are still bad, by the way. I'm not condoning either. It's less about blasphemy and cursing and more about using God's name in a manipulative way using God's name in oaths and incantations and in a way to manipulate the outcome of a situation for my own benefit. God says, my name is holy. My name is sacred. You must not misuse my name. Number four, he tells us to keep the Sabbath holy. He's telling us that God is sovereign over every day of our lives, the days that we work and the days that we don't. He's sovereign over all of them. And God calls for a cessation of work once a week for rest and to honor him. And I'll tell you that this is a unique concept in the ancient world when this was written. People were not taking the Saturdays off and Sundays off. And God says, I am Lord over every day of your week, the days that you work and the days that you rest. And I want you to take time once a week to honor and worship me. And so the first four of the Ten Commandments are vertical in nature, and the next five are horizontal in nature. They have to do with our relationships with each other. Number five, he says, honor your father and mother. He says, respect the authority. He begins with the most intimate of our relationships, our family. And he says, honor and respect the authority in your family, our ability to Honor and respect authority ultimately translates back into how we honor and respect God. And it's the fabric of how God's people and the society of God's people is woven together through the family. Number six, he says, you must not murder. He says, human life is valuable to God, so it should be valuable to his people as well. Number seven, he says, you must not commit adultery. Marriage is sacred to God, and it reflects his divine and sacrificial love for his people. It should therefore be sacred to his people as well. And then he says, number eight, he says, you must not steal. This is less about respecting the property of others, although that's implied. But even more so, it's about trusting God for our provision. The people of God do not need to steal because they trust that God is their provider. And number nine, he says, you must not testify falsely against your neighbor. And a lot of times we summarize this one and say, do not lie. 
And that is not exactly what that's saying at all. And I'm not saying lie. Go ahead and lie all you want. It's not in the Ten Commandments. Uh, He's not saying do not lie. What he's really saying here is the focus is legal and that God's people will have integrity when it comes to executing justice. And so when the outsider looks in at the people of God, they're going to see a people who have integrity and they're going to see people who have a sense of justice who approach justice with integrity and with honor and not uh, with other motives. And the final commandment, the 10th commandment, has to do with the heart. He says, do not covet. And it's the one commandment that you actually can't, you can't judge the guilt of from the surface. That's the one that's beneath the surface, beneath the surface, and it actually relates to how all of the others end up getting broken. And God said, it's not, it's not enough for my people to simply do the right thing on the outside. I care about the motives and the intents and the thoughts of their hearts as well. And so when other people see you, they're not just going to see people who do all of the right things, but they're going to see people who have the right heart. God is establishing the basis of his covenant with his people and he's revealing his character and his values and he's showing them what his special treasure and his kingdom of priests actually looks like. And he's doing it while demonstrating his awesome power and his holiness. He's saying, I rescued you. I've redeemed you. I've raised you. I brought you to myself, and now you're going to be my own special treasure. You're going to be my people. You're going to be my kingdom of priests, and you're going to shine my light to the entire world. And this is what it looks like. Of course, the ultimate truth is that even after all of this, even after God performs 10 plagues on the nation of Egypt to rescue Israel out, even though he parts the Red Sea, allows them to walk through on dry ground, and then swallows up the Egyptian army by drowning them, even though he provides bread and meat from heaven and water from a rock to provide for their needs, even though he leads them with a pillar of cloud and fire. And even after he comes down in thunder and lightning and cloud and smoke and speaks his law to them, the nation of Israel still fails on its end of the covenant. They reject God by building a golden calf, they set up their own idol to worship. They distrust God when he wants to lead them into the promised land. They end up wandering for 40 years in the desert. They were meant to be a light to the nations, but as the leadership of the nation began to follow other gods, so did the rest of the nation. And God sent all of Israel into exile. And even after they returned, they began to try to keep the law, but many of the religious leaders ended up perverting that law for their own gain. 
for their own selfish endeavors. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, it's no wonder that he is rejected as well. But Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I am going to make a new covenant. I'm going to be part of a new covenant. And this is what the new covenant looks like. In this new covenant, Jesus himself fulfills the requirements of God's holy law for us by virtue of his perfect life. In this new covenant, Jesus himself purifies and consecrates us, making us worthy of entering the presence of God once for all by virtue of his perfect sacrifice on the cross. In this new covenant, Jesus Christ himself rescues us from our slavery to sin, redeems us with his own blood, and raises us up as sons and daughters of God. And in this new covenant, he gives us a new identity and a new mission. We are God's special treasure, his royal priesthood, called to bring his light to the world. Listen, listen to what the apostle Peter says to the church in 1 Peter 2. This is Peter talking to Christians. He's talking to Christ followers here. Listen to the language he uses to describe what the church is now to be in the world. 1 Peter 2 verse 9, he says, but you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, but now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, but now you have received mercy. What God desired to do in the nation of Israel all of those years ago, he still desires to do in his people today. And because of the work of Jesus Christ and by the work of the Spirit of God, we see that beginning to happen in the church. In Exodus, God wrote his law on tablets of stone. But because of the new covenant, because of the work of the Spirit of God today, he writes his law on our very hearts as well. And so when people look at the church, they should not see a collection of individuals, but they should see a community that is different, a community that is the people of God, that reflect the character of God and the heart of God, and that stand as a light to the world so that all people may see his goodness and his glory working in us. I'm going to ask the communion servers to come as we conclude this morning. The truth is that God has always been in the business of rescuing his people. Rescuing his people, raising them, and drawing them into covenant relationship. And that relationship is transformative. The closer we get to our Savior, Jesus Christ, the closer we get to our Father God, the more we are transformed, the more we are changed, and the more he imprints in our hearts his very nature. God rescues us for relationship, and as we draw closer to him, the more we are transformed into his likeness. And so this morning, as we share communion together, we have the opportunity to remember 
We have the opportunity to remember Christ's rescuing work for us on the cross. We have the opportunity to be grateful in our hearts for how he's raised us. And we have the opportunity to draw closer to him in relationship and allow his love to transform our hearts. And ultimately, we have the opportunity to celebrate being the people of God. As we share communion today, it's not an individual action. Communion is meant to be done in community. It's meant to be done as the people of God. That's why we do it together. That's why we don't just tell you to to do it in your own homes on your own time. We come together to share communion because we're celebrating the fact that we are God's people who he's rescued, who he's redeemed, who he's raised, and who he's brought into relationship with himself.